Greetings, this is Kurt. Welcome to the first part of Book One. Please make yourself comfortable as we ignite the performances. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and share on your favorite platform. Comments or questions directed to our email will be answered promptly. If you care to help in keeping these complex productions coming, please buy me a coffee via the website coffee.com slash the Harkin Theater. Unlike my wife's favorite morning beverage, that's spelled ko-fi.com slash the Harkin Theater. Refer to episode descriptions for the exact address, our email, and our secure website, theharkintheater.com. And thank you for listening. Step through the gateway and enter the universe of the Harkin Theater. A Bridge of Doom by Kurt Paul Hotelling Prelude, The Hostage Prince Chapter 4 A rough, scaly hand grabbed his jaws and shook his head brutally. The prince awakened to his regular grim guard leering at him. Time to meet the deliverer, you man. He leaned in close as he continued to squeeze his captive's cheeks, his swamp-like breath nearly smothering. Long time since we bled a human for our savior. He will be most pleased. <coughs> Anariok choked on the vile stench pouring out between the grim's pointed yellow teeth and fangs. Flinching at the spray of phlegm and spittle, the grim let go as he stepped back and was about to backhand the prince. Give him the brew. His coughing fit abating, the prince blinked at his surroundings and discovered, to his surprise, that the camp had been dismantled and scores of grims bristling with weapons were marching in vaguely organized clumps toward one of the mountain passes. Only a few dozen had been left behind to guard him. Then he saw the sledge nearby and realized they were taking him to the battlefield for the sacrificial rite. His time was running short with no sign of rescue. He silently cursed himself for being asleep during the commotion, despite his inability to move or untie the thick knots holding him. Thirsty human. Anariok's attention was drawn back to his guard, slowly waving a tarnished brass cup at him like a toy to a child. 
In fact, he was parched and would have welcomed any moisture except for that which he knew waited for him in the cup, an opiate that would dope him heavily, yet not enough to make him oblivious to the agony of being slowly bled dry. Such mercy was beyond the Grimm's comprehension. He resisted the urge to lick his cracked lips. Not actually. Too bad. Quick as a snake, the guard stepped forward and pushed Anariok's head back against the stake and squeezed his jaw until it opened, then poured the vile-tasting concoction into his gaping mouth. Some of it splashed over his chin and down his chest. He was forced to swallow most of the stuff to keep from choking on it, but managed to hold the last mouthful in his bruised cheeks and, when his head was released, spewed it in the Grimm's face. Any satisfaction, no matter how small, was better than none, especially since he was already slated to die. The guard bent his arm back, preparing to club him with the empty cup, but was stopped by a sub-chief's grip on his shoulder. Enough. He can have no open wounds, or the shaman cannot prepare him as an unblemished offering. The sub-chief looked contemptuously at Anariok. He will pay for his disrespect. Glaring angrily between his superior and his prisoner, the guard relented with obvious reluctance and tossed the cup away. Prepare him for the ride. The guard unsheathed his stone knife, his scarlet eyes gleaming unpleasantly at his captive, then walked behind the stake and started hacking at the hempen knots. Anariok, meanwhile, understood the implication of the subchief's statement. They could no longer harm him, even if he attempted escape. This would probably be his only chance, there being only a handful of them left behind. And yet, even as his mind raced with possibilities, he could feel his muscles growing sluggish, and his eyelids drooping, and the opiate taking effect. A cold lump formed in his stomach. There would be no chance of escape. The ropes fell away, and, as he tried to move, he fell to his knees, then his hands, his muscles already too weak to hold him up. Another grim came to help, and before long, Anariok was once again trussed up and laid clumsily onto the sledge for transport to the battlefield and his executioner. As he felt himself sinking off into a heavy sleep, his fading thoughts were ones of hope and some small restitution. Grimm's being unable to tame even domestic horses because of the reptilian set, it was said. Two of them would have to drag him the entire distance up through the mountain pass. He hoped it would be a long journey. Perhaps by then the opiate would have worn off enough to allow him a chance at a last fight before the sacrifice. It stood to reason they would have to untie him before they skewered him. He watched the clouds above drift past and wondered about the afterlife, if he would be afforded a period of rest before his next incarnation. With this last thought, he fell asleep, blissfully unaware of the jostling ride 
and the curses of his captors as they carried him over the rough tracks through the mountains. Chapter 5 Marie chewed her lip apprehensively as she approached the giant eagle perched upon the hillock before her. I wish I felt more confident about this ball. The brown feathered head with its large gold eyes glanced at her in mute reply. She hoped her idea would work under the trial of actual use. With Rothson's help and a fair amount of tack and leather harness strips, she had strapped a saddle to the eagle's back. Also, with the benefit of the enchanter's spell that kept anyone from noticing her, she had managed to smuggle a sword and some survival supplies out of the city's smaller west gate. Rothson had planned to come along with Marie on their search for the prince, but the commotion started by Paul's discovery and abrupt disappearance, followed by the sighting of his altar form in the skies, which had raised an alarm and brought the master enchanter out of the meeting with the council of speakers, had left the city and the royal guard uneasy. Anything unusual was suspect, including mages and their kind. Therefore, the master enchanter was forced to stay in his chambers and remain available for immediate consultation with the martial leaders in the event of further supernatural occurrences. Not wanting to stir the already churning waters with introductions and unnecessary explanations, for which there was no time, with his scrying crystal, Rothson had seen the Grimms transporting the prince. He had decided the task he and Marie had started alone would continue in the same way, without interference from the controlling echelons. This way, if they were unsuccessful, there would be no public blame or disappointment. He would observe them from his private chambers with his crystal, though he had been quick to point out that there was nothing he would be able to do to help them if they met with overwhelming difficulty. Marie hadn't been exactly pleased with this decision, her specialty being that of carrying messages, not scouting missions nor rescue attempts. But there was little time for further consideration and no one they could immediately trust to help in their attempt at rescue. Not sure of his altar-formed strengths and abilities, Paul had balked at the idea of carrying anyone other than Marie on his back. He didn't like the thought of how much a fully armored fighter would weigh, let alone the problem of balance and so forth in the winds. No, Marie was the best choice, being light and, best of all, familiar with the entire situation. At the same time, she was just as nervous about his altar-form, being so close to his sheer size and strength was intimidating. She looked him over, decided the thongs and the saddle on his back were secure enough, and proceeded to mount, using a makeshift stirrup hanging below the regular one to lift herself over his folded wing. The large feathers were surprisingly slippery, yet soft and warm at the same time. Once settled, she tied her cloak securely about her and pulled her hood snugly over her head. Paul had warned that the flight would be quite cold, though she couldn't see the logic in this if they were closer to the suns. When he pointed out the peaks blanketed with snow, she began to understand. As she ran her hands over her equipment one last time, the eagle craned its neck around and glared his impatience at her with one gold eye. I'll be ready in a moment. 
I've never done this before. Instinctively, Marie reached for reins that were not there before remembering Paul's adamant refusal to the idea of a bridal. Damn. Despite her doubts about the thongs secured to the front of the saddle in lieu of reins, anything is better than nothing. She wrapped her arms with them and nodded her readiness. The raptor turned his head forward again, and Marie felt his large form tense and shift beneath her as he spread his wings and rose on his talons, poised for a leap upon the winds. Her belly tightened with constrained fright, and she resisted the urge to shout and jump off his back. In one fluid motion, the bird of prey leaped upward while gracefully beating his wings. Feeling her stomach drop and the momentum push her back, Marie grabbed tight onto the horn, in spite of the thongs securing her arms and her legs squeezing the saddle like a vise. Once aloft, he gathered speed, his power surging with each defiant shove against the air, and soon he and his nervous passenger were ascending high into the clouds. No one in the city saw the magnificent spectacle, Rothson's spell keeping those who might have noticed occupied with their immediate tasks. Marie held tightly to her thongs at first as they approached the cloud-wreathed white mountains, fearing any loosening of her ties promised an immediate loss of balance and a plunge to her death. After a short while, however... The ride proved very smooth and effortless, and soon she was leaning this way and that to see the land rushing by beneath them. Hills, fields, and forests shrank to small blotches of color and shape, and she marveled at the wonder of being at such a terrific height. When she opened her mouth to utter her amazement, she discovered the mistake of trying to talk with a freezing wind howling at her. Her mouth went dry instantly. It took a few moments after shutting it again to replenish the moisture. She resolved to save her comments for later. They passed above the first mountain peak where high-altitude winds dusted the air with snow. Transparent fingers of powdery white reached for them from the crest. Her face stinging and turning numb, and her eyes watering profusely from the continuous wind blast. She pulled the fur-lined hood tighter over her head and her face, now thankful for Paul's advice. No longer able to see ahead, she was still able to see below. Drunk with the wonder of the untouched expanses of snow and craggy cathedrals of rock, she closed her eyes and floated dreamily upon the cushion of air and feathers. When she sensed a change in the roar of wind against her ally's broad wings, she pulled back the hood and surveyed the scene ahead. The eagle's wings were motionless as they glided between and beneath the clouds. Before them lay a valley surrounded by a dissipating mist where lower clouds were caught in passing by the surrounding peaks, looking like tufts of cotton on seed combs. The mountains here did not stab upward like the initial march of snowcaps, their slopes and heights more rounded, with outcroppings of rock faces to the sky, the rest of their facades dark with evergreens lightly dusted with snow. A thin thread of black smoke emerged from the center of the valley and wriggled slowly skyward. Everything grew in size as the great eagle began a descent. 
For a moment, they plunged swiftly, forcing Marie to grip her thongs tightly again. Then they slowed as he flattened his wings and the wind's roar ceased. Marie was stunned by the silence, sudden and immense. Thick forest ringed the valley floor, yet thinned out as it reached toward the center. The source of the black smoke became visible, the smoldering remains of a sizable fire. Stretching away from it like poorly cut spokes on a wheel were the signs of what had been a large encampment. The remains of slaughtered game and bones picked clean surrounded smaller, abandoned fire sites. So this is where they hide. She turned about and tried to gauge just how deep in the range they had come, but could not, at the same time astonished over how short the trip had been compared to how long it might have taken on the ground. Was the prince kept here as well? Circle again, Paul. She was glad to be able to talk without freezing her tongue to her teeth, their flying speed now making the wind no more than a gentle breeze. If we can confirm this was where Prince Anariak had last been, perhaps we can follow a trail and catch up with him, if he still lives. The giant bird of prey descended further as he circled again. Then she saw it, a large stake jutting out of the ground, the only one. As they neared, she could discern shreds of thick rope at its base and beside it, strewn carelessly on the ground, were the remains of a gambeson and hauberk. The royal crest emblazoned across the chainmail, though mangled, was clear to Marie's eyes. This was the place. But which way have they gone? The eagle tilted his wings, seeking an updraft, and spiraled gradually upward, his head turning this way and that. After only a few moments, he banked southward, heading back toward the mountains they had just breached, but at a different gap between peaks. Unsure as to what was guiding him, Marie looked down to see the clear trail left behind by the marching grounds. She was forced to look forward again, the ground below passing by at a dizzying pace. As they neared the mountain pass, a gust of wind hit them hard. The eagle tipped his wings and allowed the surge of air to lift them suddenly. Gods! There they are! Hunched lizard figures, dark and barely discernible against the forested mountainside, marching hurriedly, looking like ants lugging bulky objects. Nearing, she counted twenty grims marching double-time, all their attention on the trail before them. Marie hoped no one would glance up to see who stalked them silently in the air. At the same time, she thrilled with the sensation of observing them without fear of attack. Her heart jumped when she saw the sledge with the body lying on it. God! Prince Anariak, the only human form in view. She bit her lip in anguish at his lack of movement. Is he already dead? Unlikely. To truly explore his position as a hostage, he would have to be kept alive. Also, his bonds are not only to keep him on the sledge, but to keep him from escaping, too. This isn't going to be easy. They circled as Marie considered the possibilities. Her first thought was for Paul's altar form to swoop down and pluck the prince off the sledge, if not for the rope securing him to the transport. I'm sure we can't handle the weight of both. 
And if the escort of Grimm's had been smaller, she and Paul might have had a chance at simply fighting them. Where are the other Grimm's? This group of reptiles was too small to be the combined tribal force that had originally taken the prince from the battlefield, and yet they were large enough to ward off an improvised rescue, such as she and Paul were attempting. She surmised the main force was further ahead, readying a place for sacrifice and joining battle with her people. Though she was far from being even remotely acquainted with combat strategies, she could see this was probably going to be the best possible situation for a rescue. What can we do? The eagle banked toward the west. As she grabbed a tighter hold on her saddle's thongs, Marie watched the Grimms and their hostage fall away quickly as they gained altitude, then gathered her wits enough to wonder what Paul was doing. Where do you fly? He continued higher and faster. We must go back. He's running away. He's fleeing the uncertain odds and danger. There is nothing to the west except mountains and beyond them, the ocean. She thumped the back of his neck, frustrated and suddenly furious at him for running from their only chance of rescuing the hostage prince. The raptor turned his head to glance at her, the large, harsh eye cutting her angered flailing to a fearful shiver down her spine, deeper than the penetrating cold of flight. Another hard shove of the winds forced her to grab tight to the front edge of her saddle. Resigned to the unknown fate that awaited her at the wings of this demigod, Marie leaned forward into the feathers of his neck and fought back her tears. Beneath the land rolled at a terrific speed and, after a few moments of watching the spectacle, her head was spinning and she buried her face in the feathers of the untiring giant. It was as if the world had frozen in motion as they flew above, untouched by anything but the winds. Where could he be going? My prince is behind us, being taken to his death. After a short while, the eagle began a gradual descent and Marie sat up with curiosity. She had lost her bearings and had no inkling of where in the White Mountains they were. These peaks were sharp and ominous looking, a harsh frontier with no signs of human life. The horizon beyond them was blue where the sky met the sparkling waters of the Kianthavik Ocean. She grew irritated with the puzzle of what it was Paul's altar form sought. The answer must be staring me in the face. She was deafened, and she jerked her hands instinctively to cover her ears, but the thongs stopped her. Cringing her shoulders with discomfort, she winced as he shrieked again. He circled a particularly large mountain, its facade a jumble of jutting rock and hoary trees. She stared in wonder as all around other giant eagles appeared, their wings of brown, black, and gold beating the air. For a fleeting instant, she believed the others to be attacking, a determined ferocity evident in their response. But if there was any territorial or authoritative question, it was brief. The others averted from their aggressive approaches, banked their broad wings, and circled instead, their eyes watching the intruder and his rider expectantly. Paul's altar form tilted his wings to seek out an updraft and soared back to the clouds. Eagerly turning this way and that, she tried to see how many followed, but had difficulty spotting more than three or four at any one time. 
while she hung on to her thongs and felt the thrill of the flight coupled with the surge of hope, she reflected on the forgotten majesties of the skies. Long disregarded by men, the giant birds of prey had not been seen for more than a hundred riads. Before that time, the eagles had coexisted, undisturbed by the growing presence of men, and were even worshipped by one religion that believed them omens of sky gods. One ill-fated riad, a certain brotherhood of hunters, undertook a sport in killing the raptors for use as trophies at first, and then as part of an initiation proving manhood that left brutally slain carcasses rotting across the land. Eventually an ivory was pilfered, and the eaglets were then slaughtered. Just as quickly as the sport had begun, the giant eagles withdrew from explored territories and shunned all signs of mankind, instead of retaliating as would have been expected. Those among men who believed they had proven their species superior soon learned otherwise. For with the departure of the giant eagles, fiercer animals moved closer to civilized settlements, unafraid of the vanished giant birds and preyed on humans. Once the reason for this dangerous encroachment was determined, the Brotherhood was hunted down in turn by the citizens of the kingdom and imprisoned for their atrocities. Regardless, the eagles were not seen again, apparently clinging to an existence of solitude, unforgiving and never revealing themselves to men again. As the generations passed, the giant raptors fell into myth. Now and then, like a fireside tale, word would be passed of someone who had snatched a glimpse of a giant eagle soaring above the clouds. Paul's altar form descended toward a familiar ridge of mountains, and Marie turned to look at his followers. God, there are eleven! The winged force sailed silently across the crest shrouded in mist. Chapter 6 Anarias awoke from his heavy slumber. The gentle sway and wobble of the sledge had stopped. Detached curiosity and some small voice that might have been fear forced him to lift his eyelids, despite the sensation of lead weights holding them shut. He was still bound to the sledge and, with difficulty, looked around feebly, his vision fuzzy from exhaustion and the opiate he had been forced to drink. Discerning only blurred figures, he guessed the Grimms were fighting something. The air was filled with cries of angry and frightened Grimms and others. Birds? Uncaring, Anariok closed his eyes and allowed the heaviness to pull him down again. Probably some flock of migrating fowl. He knew from his lengthy exposure to the Grimms their love of the meat for feast and feathers and talons for decoration. Perhaps this would delay his execution. A Grim seemed to fly up from beside him and suddenly he was alert. Not since the battle when he was captured so many days before had he heard a panicked lizard. Anariok squinted his eyes into the bright sky. Perhaps some twist of karmic fate had turned the situation sour for his evil captors. 
and for him as well, being an easy target. The swift shadows darting about in the sky sent him struggling weakly with the ropes, his mind conjuring the image of a flock of birds pecking his eyes out and tearing at his flesh. But the bonds were tight, and he was weak. Tears of despair filled his eyes as he clawed uselessly at a knot. God, help me! Something large behind him scratched at the dirt. He tried to see, but his eyes were still misty. Thinking it would be best not to draw undue attention to his being bound and defenseless, he ceased tugging at the hempen and remained motionless with his eyes closed. Amidst the chaos, footsteps approached his sledge. No doubt one of his guards checking he was still secured. He held his breath. Someone jerked at his ropes. My liege? A cool, smooth hand brushed his cheek. A human voice. He was stunned. Do not move. I'm cutting the ropes. They're too tight to unravel. He managed to open his eyes and look blearily at the fair-skinned face hovering over him. How? Weak from being bound for so many days, he rolled clumsily off the sledge and landed on his face. He raised himself on shaky arms. Water, please. Firm hands shifted him supine and pressed a vial to his lips while gently supporting the back of his head. Cool, tingling fluid slipped across his sticky tongue and down his parched throat. He managed to clutch the vial in his hand. We must go as soon as you are able, my liege. There are too many grams for us to keep back for more than... Anariot's head was dropped rudely as the woman scrambled to defend herself. Fearing the worst, he froze. A reptile had slipped up from behind and tried to knife her. Beast! Wondering why her compatriots weren't defending her, then reasoned that the rest were still occupied with their storming of the grim detachment. Anariok shifted onto his side and gulped the rest of the light, sweet liquid, recognizing it to be an elixir of strength and antidote for most poisons. The fact that he had been found was miraculous. They had no doubt lost many fighters forging this deep into the uncharted mountain range. No matter how sick he was, he resolved to do everything possible to help the warriors of this rescue mission who had survived against such terrible odds. He cast the bottle aside and made a wobbly attempt at standing. The grim cursing had been cut along an arm. The prince stood shakily, his muscles responding slowly as the potion warmed his gut. His vision had improved. He caught the glint of blade swinging nearby. The deliverer gives me another human to cut and bleed. He was now able to see his rescuer clearly as she maintained a protective stance between him and the red-eyed Grim wielding a long, curved blade. He blinked several times to make sure he wasn't just imagining things. He had expected a seasoned female warrior, but from her slightly awkward posture and the position of her sword, he could tell this young woman was far from experienced in battle. And yet she held herself confidently, guarding her future king with fire in her eyes. Nothing will stop this sacrifice. 
we shall drink your blood as well as his. Anariok cast about for a weapon, any weapon. Any trained warrior could see this woman's gallantry was fueled more by anger than experience, a disadvantage of which the lizard was also concluding as he eyed her form hungrily, deciding which portion of her he would butcher first. Where are her protectors? The prince glanced about with wide eyes, seeing no soldiers, only dark forms swooping nearby and the plummeting shapes of falling grounds. The young woman's opponent feigned a lateral move, testing her defenses, then jumped at her suddenly. But she proved herself with a slash downward, warding him back, then heaved her blade back up and deflected a thrust that barely tagged her gambeson. Give me your dagger. He was desperate for something in his hands. She managed to unsheathe and toss a short blade at his feet, then backed towards him. We must leave now, my liege, before they regroup. He bent over awkwardly to pick up the dagger, but as his fingers curled around the grip, a grimish foot stood on the blade. Clawed hands grabbed him by his hair, yanked him upright, and pressed a knife against his throat. He froze as the familiar foul-smelling breath enveloped his nose. The sting of the blade just broke his skin. The first grin leaped forth again, kicked Marie's feet out from under her, then pressed a foot on her stomach while standing all his weight on her arm, forcing her to drop the sword. Send away birds, or we cut her now. Paul! Anariok felt his captor jerk violently, and the knife drop away as he was released. He spun around to behold the second grin dwarfed beneath a huge feathered form. Dark yellow talons curled around the reptile's head and throat and squeezed, snapping the puny neck in their grasp. Blood splattered in all directions, and the limp body dropped lifeless to the dirt. Undaunted, the first grim raised his blade to stab Marie, but was forced back as the giant eagle's head lunged at him, the gaping beak nearly snapping his head off. Lizard and raptor regarded each other warily, each estimating the other. The prince collected his wits as quickly as he could, snatched up the dagger Marie had thrown for him, and approached the reptile, all the agony and fury of his imprisonment seething to the surface. Who shall cut whom? He enjoyed the surprised stare of his enemy at his fluent use of their language. Marie scrambled to her feet. Despite the soreness in her gut and the bruise on her arm, she lifted the heavy sword again and took a protective stance next to her prince. The reptile sized up the situation, his red eyes gleaming unpleasantly from his flat-scaled face as he glanced furtively in all directions. Any other Grims still alive were either running for cover or were slinging rocks and throwing blades uselessly at the giant birds when they swooped low with talons outstretched. Making a quick decision, he turned and ran. Anariok threw his dagger at the retreating back, but missed narrowly. The fleeing lizard was covered in shadow and lifted into the air. The prince found satisfaction in his captor's flailing plummet to the ground and smiled grimly at the resounding smack of flesh on stone.
Marie stepped to his side as she put down the sword and pulled a cloth from her pockets to press on the long cut on his throat. Are you all right? Anariok's wooziness continued to ease and his vision expanded, but the sudden exertion had taxed what strength he had been able to muster. He did little more than stand and stare at the crumpled form of the Grim as the potion continued to rejuvenate his depleted body. To Marie's relief, his throat wound was superficial. My liege, are you able to move? We must be away. She glanced around to make sure no one was near enough to bother them as the comforting whir of wings continued overhead. Just beyond a rise on the path ahead, she could hear the remaining reptiles regrouping. Despite the furious attack of the eagles, their time on the ground was getting very short. She had no doubt the Grems, once organized, could repel the eagles enough to reclaim their hostage. Finally, Anariok tore his eyes away from the scene before him and embraced her, relishing in his freedom. I had lost all hope. Embarrassed with this open display of affection from her future king, Marie patted a tentative palm upon his back. We must be away. Of all my people, you came for me. I had considerable help, liege. He released her, except for a hand on her shoulder, and gazed into her eyes. Give me your name. I am Marie. I serve as a messenger. More than that, my my friend. Yes, more than that. And now I will meet your ally. He lifted his head toward the great raptor standing behind them. This, this is Paul. The result of a successful venture by your servant, Master Enchanter Rothson. With a weary head, Anariok ogled the gold eye trained upon him, then watched in awe as the eagle spread out his wings. Respectfully and and thankfully, I, uh, I believe. He had been taught all manner of protocol, but had never imagined meeting an intelligent creature such as this great raptor. If he survived this incident, he resolved to correct that situation, if possible. The matter of his salutation was unimportant, apparently, as Marie directed him to a pair of thongs and a double stirrup dangling from the eagle's side. Grab hold of these and mount his neck. With an understanding nod, he did as instructed, grunting as he coaxed shaky arms and unsteady legs to lift him up and into the saddle. Feeling more confident in her ability to ride without hanging onto the saddle desperately, Marie considered her prince's giddy state and, after mounting behind him, she wrapped the thongs around her own arms and embraced him tightly, then nodded at the fierce downy head watching them both. A handful of grins appeared on the rise in a flurry of swinging blades as they rushed to recapture the prince. At that moment, the great eagle leaped into the wind. Upon feeling the now familiar drop of her stomach and sight of the world falling away, Marie let go of a breath she did not know she was holding. The sudden threat of attacking Grems became a harmless curiosity on the ground falling further below, red eyes gleaming hatred at their escaping hostage and his rescuers. Paul's altar form called out to the others seizing lizards, ending their siege. 
eagles from all sides beat the air furiously again. The winged force rose through a bank of mist and broke into the cold azure sky where distant white-capped peaks glared at the double suns. Marie watched her prince with concern as she kept her arms firm around him. Feeling his shoulders shiver beneath her chin, she realized he was inadequately covered for the icy breeze of the flight, his clothing nothing more than stray tatters. She clamped her legs tight to the rear of the saddle, found her balance against the increased gravity of the eagle's ascension, and shifted her cloak around him. He seemed not to notice as he weaved back and forth in either disbelief at the panorama of flying or an uneasy balance. Marie worried about the extent of his malnourishment and weakened health, and she wondered if he would live through the journey home. She hugged closer to his back, sharing her warmth and seeking reassurance that he was indeed going to live. Around them was only the roar and thrum of feathers cutting the wind. Soon the eagle stilled and flattened his wings and rode the thermals as he sought a smooth descent among the towering white clouds. Suddenly, Anariok fell forward where he sat. Frightened, Marie shook him, hoping he was merely unconscious. A hand stayed hers as he sat up again and turned his face to her. Tears flew from his eyes into the breeze, his expression a mixture of agony and joy. Seeing this, she understood his feelings. After nearly a moon of being hostage to the Grimms and an impending death, he was coming home. Feeling uncomfortable witnessing such powerful emotion from the crown prince, Marie bowed her head in reverence. The white mountains gave way to rolling hills, a great lake sparkling in the suns, and the fortress city of Forum. The host of twelve great eagles descended gracefully, like petals from a golden sky-bound flower, and circled the royal city. Not wanting her bruised arm to ache any more than it was, Marie tugged gently at a stalk of wild wheat and felt its smoothness between her fingers while she gazed longingly at the clouds turning amber. The first time on the eagle's back had been frightening. The second had been exhilarating. She had experienced what no other mortal had. In her heart, she rejoiced. She sat next to Paul outside the fortress city's west wall as the double suns sank low toward the horizon. Behind them could be heard the merriment inside the city's walls, its citizens rejoicing in the return of their royal son. Word had gone out swiftly to the battlegrounds to inspire the warriors. The prince was home, the Grems defeated, the kingdom's future secure. This day would see a joyous end. Resting by his side, Marie wondered at this young man now reveled as an avenging god-hero, and what description could really be truthful of this impertinent, dark-skinned boy that seemed no older than she. Tearing her eyes away from the sunset gathering in the sky, she turned her head to gaze upon him. He had said very little since their return. After dispersing the other eagles, he had, in a flash of blinding white light, returned himself to human form, then disentangled himself from the straps of Marie's makeshift saddle coiled at his feet. 
Both he and Anariok entered the city to cries of delight and wonderment. She had subsequently lost him in the surging crowds and sought him finally on what she nicknamed Paul's Hill, where she had found him before their adventure north. A lock of her hair that had escaped her braid fluttered in her eyes. She brushed it away from her face and regarded him with curiosity. He sat with knees drawn up, arms linked around his legs, and eyes shut as he dozed quietly. Fatigue had been evident since their return from the White Mountains. And why not? Paul accomplished what no legion of fighters could. Her heart swelling with gladness for his feet, his willingness to help, and the incredible experience of flight with a demigod. She touched a tentative hand to his. Paul's eyes opened evenly and met hers, unable to stop his gentle smile. He had wanted to talk, to shout, to laugh his thrill with discovering this wonderful part of himself, this ultimate dream come true. The power of flight, the joy of rescuing others in need, the confidence and, perhaps, intuition of knowing where to find other eagles. He felt he belonged in this strange world, but mere words lacked the intensity of his feelings. At the same time, he was frightened of this shape-shifting ability. Uncomfortably, he remembered the ease with which he had literally squeezed the life from that one grim. The first time he had killed another intelligent being, and commanded others to kill. There had been a raw fury in his veins as the eagle, when the Grimms had nearly killed both Anariok and Marie a ferocity he had not known he possessed, and one that was absent from him now. Weighing his emotions against this new awareness, he regarded his reaction to the killing and decided it was really no different from protecting oneself with a weapon when threatened in his own world. His initial reactions upon returning to human form had been horror and disgust with himself. Only street gangs and criminals acted like mindless primitives in their use of bloody violence. But they are indiscriminate and evil. You were brought into a barbaric war where violence has to be met with violence. He finally decided that self-awareness, even of dark things, was better than ignorance. And fearing my ability to end another's life is certainly better than thrilling it. And with these realizations that reverberated into the very core of his being, he decided, This world is definitely real. He didn't know how or why, but he let it be. The depth of the sensations he experienced and the memory he was building was too substantive to be illusion. In retrospect, he remembered his first moment in this world, and knew he had left that doubting part behind. For once he was content. He took Marie's hands in his own and grinned happily at her. Thank you. Why? It is we who owe gratitude. We? My people, my prince, my Lord Rothson. But you were the one who made the journey to find me, drag me here, then come with me to rescue your prince. All I've done has been a, a porter, a steed of the sky, 
and a protector for me and my liege. That was easy. For me, anyway. Easy? It was you who overcame the obstacles and faced the danger. Dropping her hands from his, she stopped herself before losing her temper. As if I could have flapped my arms and flown there myself. She shook her head at the absurdity of their argument. <laughs> Fool am I to quarrel with a demigod. Paul rolled his eyes, then grinned again, his white teeth flashing out of his dark face. Something about her enticed him, made him feel at ease, but he wasn't sure what. The last sunlight of the day was refracted through a bank of clouds, the waning beams streaking across the sky to bathe the couple in warm hues of rose and gold. Taking his hands in hers again, Marie gazed into his deep brown eyes and, for a moment, fancied she could detect the great eagle's cold stare glimmering back at her from beneath his expression. Inspired by the sunset, I thank you, Paul, by the sisters of the sky. His smile dropped as he jerked his head to the horizon. Did... did I say something wrong? Sisters? You mean your two sons? Why, yes. He glanced back at her, his eyes wide, his skin tightening with the chill down his spine. The specters. Suddenly he wanted to say a hundred things, share all his thoughts with her, but it was too late. He jumped to his feet and glanced about. I'm out of time, Marie, and I don't know what to do. What are you talking about? She stood and looked around with him. Rawson say you go back tomorrow morning. No, I've got to go back now! She blinked with confusion and pain, feeling somehow rejected just as she was opening her heart to him. You you can't go now. What are you... They're coming for me at sunset. Who? The specters. Marie's blood went cold as she looked to where the first sun had already disappeared below the horizon. Rawson. She grabbed his hand to pull him with her through the spreading shadows. He'll know what... No. Paul yanked himself away from her grasp. Get away from me. I don't want you to be hurt. Marie stood and stared helplessly after him. No. No! Don't go! She started down the slope after him, then stumbled to a halt as the first specter tripped him with its curved sword. The three white-robed entities had simply appeared, their ghostly steeds behind them snorting and pawing the earth. Caught between fear and anger, she wanted to tear into the awful creatures, to scream, to stop them somehow, but was suddenly unable to move. Paul rolled over and tried to get up, but was stopped by the point of a second and third sword touching his belly. The faceless hoods seemed to glare down at him, the sky behind them turning purple. The violation now ends. You will have no memory of this world and your deeds. All that has passed shall be corrected. After what he had gone through, experienced, and discovered about himself, the thought of having no recall was terrifying. Worse, it sounded like everything that had happened, all that he and Marie had done would be reversed. No! Straining against the sharp points pressing into his stomach, he could just see Marie standing on the side of the hill and watching, strangely motionless. 
You can't change it back. Don't take this away from me. The imbalance will be corrected. Feeling the psychic pressure of their combined will growing stronger as the sky faded toward night, Paul knew he could not resist them this time. Before they had offered, now they demanded. Please! He wanted to stand and look around one last time, drink in everything he could of this world, but their swords prevented him. Unable to do anything else, he craned his neck up and sought Marie, her form, her hair, her face, her eyes. As one, the specters raised their blades and swung down swiftly. Marie flinched at the flash of blinding white, then clapped her hands to her ears and flailed for balance as she was knocked down. Flocks of geese took to the skies in a flurry of flapping wings. When she could open her eyes and see, there was nothing but a scorch mark on the ground. Paul and the specters were gone. She ran down to where they had last been, stopped and looked around, feeling a mixture of dread and awe of the specters' power. Stooping to touch them first, she then sat amongst the charred stalks of wild wheat. She fought back tears, her heart overwhelmed with a sudden emptiness. So much had been shared in such a short time, and now he was gone. The fiery rim of the second sun sank behind the distant forest, and evening's ambient shadows took possession of the landscape and the lake. At the base of a small hill outside the west gate of the royal city, a young woman sitting alone stared quietly at the wild wheat rippling in the twilight breeze. Here ends the prelude. The story continues in part two, Agents of the Dark One, a prince's second sojourn. The sound plays were written, recorded, directed, mastered, and produced by Kurt Paul Hotelling. Copyright 2022. Character voices for prelude are performed by Geraldine Cummings, Kevin Norris, and H. The Great and Powerful. The novel and sequels of the Quintology are available through Amazon.com or on Kindle Books, can be ordered at your favorite bookseller, or can be purchased directly and at best price with additional bonuses from the author by submitting a request to our email. Music for the Harkin Theater was composed and performed by Evan McDonald, Florian Serral, Francesco D'Andrea, Atlas Mason, High Street Music of London, and licensed by PremiumBeat.com. Public domain music performances are licensed under Lieber Lieber Creative Commons. More detailed music and performer credits can be requested from the Harkin Theatre at Yahoo.com. Sound effects and original foley provided by Cusp Studios and the BBC Library.
This was recorded on location in the universe.